the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Morning, everyone. Hey, um, just a bit word before. Thank you for the privilege of, yeah, letting... Uh, me deliver messages and, and for all the kind words this morning. Um, I won't get into it too much because I'll probably get a little bit emotional, but it means a lot. So, yeah, thank you guys. Uh, last week, we got introduced to a new series, Book of Hebrews. It included this walkthrough of the first few chapters of, uh, first few verses of chapter one. So, today, like Murray said, we're going to look at the first few verses of chapter two. Now, Ivy already answered my initial questions about the book of Hebrews, like who wrote it, basically we don't really know, and who it was written to. Also don't 100% know that either, but it was most likely Jews that had been converted to Christianity. No dilly-dallying, as my nana would say, we're straight into it. I'm going to read through Hebrews 2, 1 to 9. Bear with me, it's got two parts in the slides. So it starts like this. Therefore, we should give them more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first begun to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visiteth him? Thou have made him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour, and did set over him the works of thine hands." Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, there might have been some phrases in there that are quite recognisable, um, but first I just want to have a look into that verse 1, which has this warning. That's Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we should give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, um, maybe a couple of words in there you're not 100% familiar with. So earnest is uh, seriousness, longing, desire, eagerness. And heed is a care, attention, caution, notice, and observation. So in other words, listen very carefully to the things which we have already heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. A version you're reading might say drift away. Okay, so I believe this writer is urging the Hebrew, uh, the readers of Hebrews to give serious care and attention to the things that they've had heard in case they should let them slip or drift away. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So what exactly are the things that these Jewish Christians, we believe, have heard that they should not forget? 
So I believe it goes on to talk about it in the following verses, and starting in chapter 2, verse 2. We've already read it, but it says, For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now I must admit, I was pretty curious about this when I first read it, because when I think about transgression and disobedience, and um, I think about the, the law, so the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, you know, the Ten Commandments. And I looked in a couple of versions, and I say things like, For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. Okay, so I think, okay, that definitely sounds like the law given to Moses, possibly all the ordinances as well, like no eating pork or having a mullet. Um, sorry, oh, sorry, that one's not, maybe not in there. It should be, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, please allow me to geek out a little bit here with the text, because it might be obvious to some people here, but it's never really been obvious to me or dawned on me that there are verses that reference the fact that angels were part of giving the law. For example, Galatians 3.19, Whereof then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So according to that verse, the Lord was given by God through angels because of our transgressions. So Bible talk for sin, disobeying God's law. So who here has heard the analogy that the law is like a mirror? It's a pretty common one. When we look in the mirror of the law, we see ourselves or what we truly are. Um, and it's not exactly pretty. So again, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that if the law given to the Israelites from God through angels was steadfast, meaning firm or fixed in place, which it was, then we have a problem. Because any breaking of the law, any lie, any stolen thing, no matter how small, every time we looked at something that we shouldn't, uh, or wanted something that wasn't ours, we're due the reward of those sinful actions. And what is the reward? Uh, what's the payment of sin? I'm sure you know. Romans 6.23 said, For the wages of sin is death. That's our payment. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in, chapter, in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So we've established the law is firm and fixed in place and the transgression or sin against the law receives the penalty of death. Then how are we going to escape it? Then the writer is directing us to a great salvation, starting with a message that was spoken by the Lord, which prompts the question, what did Jesus have to say about the law? Quite depressing things, to be honest. I know the word likes to paint the picture of Jesus as like this 1960s hippie who hands out flowers and free love stickers to everybody. But Jesus' sermons were very confronting. For example, Matthew 5.17, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And we all know the scribes and Pharisees were like the religious zealots of the day. They typed everything, even their herbs, and they're always studying the word, the Torah, standing on street corners, praying out loud, long prayers. And Jesus is saying we've got to be even more righteous than that, uh, which means righteous means good, moral, up, honest, upright, all of those things. It encompasses all of it. Moral perfection. 
But then Jesus continues in verse 21, Matthew yeah, 5:21. You've heard it said that. Sorry, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, "Thou shalt not kill," and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Little pop quiz: Who knows what number commandment that is? Four? No, six. Mary's got it. Nice. Sorry, I just wanted to know if anybody <laughs> actually knew that. <laughs> I didn't. I had no idea. Makes sense. Doesn't it? I mean, you, even the world would agree with that kind of judgment. So most of the crowd probably breathes a sigh of relief. Okay, they're off the hook on that one. But then Jesus takes it a step further in verse 22 and says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, there would be some people starting to sweat who hasn't been angry at one of their siblings' family at one time or another. Danielle. <laughs> Jesus then goes on to use the same tactic in Matthew 27. He says, You've heard it said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, which is the seventh commandment, by the way. <laughs> but I say unto you that whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her committed adultery has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'd like to think that there were some. Um, Husbands who probably didn't want to be there at that very point in time when Jesus was speaking those words. There were people back then who thought that they had this righteousness thing all sorted. Like the Pharisee prayed the prayer in Luke 18, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men are. Or the rich young ruler in Mark 10, who when Jesus asked him about the Ten Commandments, commandments his response is, Master, all of these I have kept from my youth. Were these men as righteous as they claimed? No, Jesus exposed them both. The point is, Jesus drove it home. How could anyone have possibly lived up to that standard? Not only are we talking about doing the right thing all the time, always, but also having the right motives behind it. Because Jesus sees what's going on in our hearts. In Matthew 20, uh, 7.28 it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended all these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. <laughs> And I'm not surprised. That would have been some pretty heavy stuff to digest on the way home. Like we discussed before, the, the law makes you aware of your sin. And that's Romans 20. For you note takers, it, it holds up that mirror. It shows you exactly as you are. And let's be honest, generally that makes people pretty uncomfortable. We'd rather make up our own standards, our own laws, things we can regulate and control, things we can change if it doesn't fit us. I believe now, more than ever, the world has become very self-righteous. How else would people be so ready to condemn others for things that they did years ago, sometimes decades ago? This, this culture, I know it's, I hate using buzzwords, but it's like this cancel culture is, is this culture of unforgiveness, condemnation and intolerance, dressed up as tolerance for all. Um, that's kind of how messed up it all is. It's like, it's tolerance, it's not tolerance for all, it's tolerance for whoever agrees with you. And that is a hallmark of self-righteousness, along with pride and impatience for others who think differently from you. Sound familiar? But Mark, you say, there are lots of people in the church with that same attitude as well. And I totally agree. <laughs> when I became a Christian, when I became, when I became born again, I still drank alcohol, I still smoked, not cigarettes, but other stuff. 
I had premarital sex, but in all honesty, that first period after my conversion was some of the closest times I've ever felt to the Lord. And was that because God was okay with all those things? Of course not. <laughs> his word says that he isn't, and I like the word uh, world, he doesn't change his mind every five minutes. But because I believe he's primarily interested in relationship with us, the more time I spent with him, reading about him in the Bible, talking to him, and prayer is to fall asleep talking to him, the more those things just gradually fell away. Some things were harder to shed than others, but in his strength they eventually went. Amen. <laughs> However, somewhere along the path, a couple of years ago, I felt like I needed to take my Christian walk more seriously. I saw my friends taking similar steps, and I started to become really rigid in my thinking. And as my wife would attest to, I became quite legalistic about it all, really black and white. I felt like I needed to prove myself more and more to God to go into the next level. And I thought that strict adherence uh, to the law in a traditional sense was, was something that I wanted to do, was something that I should be doing. My wife might attest that maybe I'm still too legalistic with that. However, when I look back, I realized that I'd lost some of the heart of the faith journey and I'd become quite judgmental of others because I'd look at them and say, well, if I can become disciplined in this, then why can't you? And my compassion dwindled and my pride and my performance increased. I began to lose the joy and the peace because some weeks when I felt like my performance was less than adequate, I felt condemned and unworthy. You look up the opposite to self-righteousness and what words do you get? Humble, meek, caring, thoughtful, compassionate. We read in chapter 1, and Ivy went through this, about how amazing Jesus is, about how much better he is than the angels, about how worthy of praise he is, about how righteous he is. Jesus the righteous is one of his titles. Despite all of that, he saw fit to leave heaven and come to earth to be made lower than not just the angels, but the creatures that are described as being even lower than the angels came as one of us. You want the example of humble, meek, caring, thoughtful, and compassionate. Look to Jesus. Now, let's remember again who this letter of Hebrews appears to be written to. Jewish Christians. And again, the writer tells them, Therefore, we should give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word slip traditionally means to, to lose your footing and to slide away. So Psalm 40 talks about us being brought out of a horrible pit and our feet set upon a rock. And 1 Corinthians talks about Jesus being the rock. I believe one of the things the writer of Hebrews is saying here is don't lose your footing and slip back into that mindset, that mindset of thinking that you're going to be justified by the law and the need to achieve your own righteousness by your works. Because if you do, then you won't be able to escape. You're going to be bound by that. We're urged not to neglect or forsake the great salvation found in Jesus Christ. I love a point that Ivy brought up last week. I've never really thought about it. About the immense pressure that these Jewish Christians must have been under from their families and their friends and their community. 
I can imagine the conversation between a, a mother and a, and a son. They're being like, what, what do you mean this, this Jesus died for your sins and made you righteous? That rebel rabbi that they crucified a couple months ago. And he'd be like, yes, mum, but he, he rose from the dead. And it'd be like, you're, I can just imagine it being like, you're talking crazy. Like, you need to go back, you, you know, we've been listening to the Torah, we've been observing this, we've been keeping ordinances and sacrifices at the temple for hundreds of years, you need to stick with us and not be drawn away from this. But remember this, James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. We can't do it. <laughs> David cried to the Lord in Psalm 51 that he was born in iniquity. In other words, he was born a sinner. He's been a sinner since birth. But Hebrews 2.9 reminds us of true salvation. Not salvation by keeping the law because we're unable to do it, but salvation through Jesus. I'm going to read it again, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The grace of God spoken about in Ephesians 2.8. And for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is the gift of God, sorry. The devil hates that message, I think. You know why? Because he all these big false religions that, that he helps set up, I know that's not exactly PC to say, but they're all works-based yeah, you look into them. If he desperately wants us to think that we can get there ourselves because he knows if we start relying on ourselves, then we're never going to rely on God's power. Our friends next door, work-based. Book of Mormon says you're saved by grace after all you can do. Then you've got people that say you've got to, um, you know, be bat- uh, do the sacraments, sorry. <laughs> Confirmation, confession, eating the, the Eucharist. Over on the other side of the world, you've got pilgrimages to Mecca and praying five times a day and keeping all the commandments in the Quran. You've got Buddhists, which is work-based. Do good to others and you might come back as something awesome, like a master chef judge. Honestly, what a job. <laughs> but if you lie and cheat and steal, then you might come back as something really unfortunate, like a slug or Nick White. <laughs> I, wrote, I put that in there, Nick White's a, a wallaby who got penalised for waiting too late to kick. People say he cost them the Bledisloe Cup. I put that in there just for Aaron, and he's not here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, Rachel, thank you. <laughs> if someone could pass it on to him. But the list goes on and on. I could list another ten more. What Jesus and the writers of all these subsequent letters to the church detailed was truly remarkable that God was willing to take our punishment upon himself. So great is his love for us. It's, it's actually completely profound. So we deserve death for our sins, but Jesus took our place on the cross. He was punished instead of us, even though he never did anything wrong. Now hear me right, I'm not saying that once you put your trust in Jesus, you can go around doing whatever you want. Um, Paul makes it very clear, Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. But God promises to write his law on the hearts of his people. That we would seek to keep it not out of obligation, because, of what, because we think it will get us to heaven, but out of appreciation. 
of what Jesus did for us on the cross and simply because we want to be more like him. Now I'm going to end on this. It's a very known story. Bear with me. It came to mind when I thought about the contrast between the law and grace. So it's found in John 8. Jesus was in the middle of teaching a whole bunch of people in the temple and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees drag in this woman. In John 8, 4, and they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. So basically she, or they I should say, I don't know how the guy got away, were caught red-handed, guilty as, open and shut case. No talking your way out of this one. The scribes and the Pharisees then say to Jesus, verse 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? As we all probably know, Jesus takes his time. He writes in the dirt for a bit and then delivers one of his many famous lines. He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Gradually, everyone drops their stones and leaves, oldest to the youngest, until it's just Jesus and this woman. And he says in verse 10, Woman, where are thy accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she says, in part, in verse 11, No man, Lord. It's like she's begging the question, But what do you say about it, God? And Jesus said unto her, in verse 11, continued, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The point I'm getting is the only person worthy to judge her that day was Jesus. She was guilty, plain and simple. And the very God that gave Moses those Ten Commandments was standing in front of her. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. So that same person that had told all those multitudes that just looking upon someone with lust was evidence enough to make you guilty. She might have even been at the Sermon on the Mount. Did, Jesus, did what Jesus say to her make him a hypocrite? No, because what he gave to her, the Bible calls grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor, a gift. And because of his great love, He's willing to do the same thing for us. If we ask and believe. What the point we had before, like, did Jesus leave his sinner un unacknowledged? No, he addressed it. You see, I believe Jesus knows better than anybody the consequences of sin. After all, he bore it all on the cross. Every rotten thing we've ever done, and I've done plenty. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus became her saviour that day. And we don't know the rest of her story, but I'd like to think that she lived the rest of her days like she'd been given a second chance at life. Maybe a little bit like me. I look at the world and the state of it, and I'm so ready to start throwing stones. <laughs> I'm like, God, do you see this? Do you see what they're doing? And I feel like I get the same response that that angry crowd did. And that stone in my hand drops to the ground. If you want a heart for the lost like Christ does, then be prepared to love the unlovable, to return good for evil, to be humbled, crushed, maybe even killed, just like he was. And um, maybe you feel like you're 
on the receiving end. <laughs> like you're that guilty, condemned. Like you're just waiting to feel the brunt of those stones hitting you. I prayed over this. I said, God, what would you say to that person? Sorry. <clears throat> he gave me a verse. It's Luke 19.9. It says, today salvation has come to this house. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that salvation in you is not complicated. Because if it was, Lord, we'd screw it up. Thank you that confessing with your mouth that you're Lord and Savior Jesus and believing in your heart, believing in our heart that you've been raised from the dead, we can be saved. So we thank you for this wonderful gift of grace. And we ask that, Lord, if there's anyone out there that's wants to receive that gift or wants a, rec a reconfirming of that gift, we just ask that you'd give them the courage to come forward. And we thank you in advance for all that you've done for us and all that you're going to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.